0: You know, we're in a series called The The Moral of the Story, and we're looking at some of the parables from the Gospel of Luke where Jesus reveals the heart of the Father for those who are far from him. It was uh, a year ago that I went for my annual physical, and part of what they did was an EKG, or an ECG, as some of them call it. And it's an echocardiogram. They want to check the electrical part of your heart. You know, every time your heart beats, it sends out that electrical signal that uh, squeezes that muscle to pump that blood. And they wanted to do a little check of my heart. And so they did that. And uh, thankfully, everything was fine. I'm so happy to report to you. I have a heart. uh, So that was nice to know. And, you know, I wonder sometimes about, is there a way to check my heart for God? My love for him, my passion for him, my devotion for God. Is there, a, is there a test that I can perform that will reveal my heart for God? And actually there is. And, and there's a test that you can take as well to see how your heart really is for God. Are you really committed to loving him first in your life and foremost in your life? You can actually see this test all the way back in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. The Old Testament, for example, you know, whenever God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, the first four of those commandments are, are vertical. They, they talk about our relationship with God and how God must be first. We've got to love God supremely. The final six, though, are, are, are horizontal. They affect our relationship with other people, how we treat other people. It's as if God is saying to us, if you want to know if you really love me and are committed to me, look at how you treat other people. That is a great test of your love for me. It is easy to proclaim that we love God, but the real test is how do we treat other people created by God in the image of God? How do we treat the people in our lives, in our community, in our world? And we're going to see an example of this from the life of Jesus where he deals with a man who had a heart problem. And Jesus reveals this heart problem that this man has. He thinks he's right with God. He thinks he's right with other people. And yet Jesus administers this test and reveals to him and to all of us that he was neither. He was neither right with God. He certainly wasn't right with other people. And I don't want to be this person in the story we're going to read today. But I'm afraid I often am. It is so easy for me to not put God first and to not love other people like I should. Where I'm going to take you today is the gospel of Luke chapter 10. And today we're going to begin by reading from the English Standard Version, verses 25 through 37. And the message is called, Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Here in Luke chapter 10, I want to set the scene for you. In the life of Jesus, there were some religious leaders who were looking for any way they could to discredit Jesus in the eyes of the people. Jesus' popularity is on the rise because of his awesome teaching. They've never heard anyone teach the word of God like this man has. His popularity is on the rise in the eyes of the people because of the miracles he is performing and changing people's lives. And because of the grace and the love and the kindness and the mercy that he is showing like they've never seen before. And many people are attracted to this, but the religious leaders are threatened by it. They're threatened by his popularity. They're threatened by the fact that he is claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God, sent from God himself into the world to save the world And so they want to find any way they can to discredit him, to trip him up, to make him look bad in the eyes of the people, to catch him in some political or moral controversy. So the passage we're going to read today is where they think they have their opportunity, they have their shot. A man decides he's going to ask Jesus a trick question, try to get Jesus involved in a controversial conversation so that other people will say, well, if that's what Jesus believes, I don't want any part of that. But the guy who, who sets the trap for Jesus springs his own trap. And uh, we'll see this in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now just think for a moment. This is a lawyer, not a lawyer in civil law, but a lawyer in The Mosaic Law of the Old Testament. This is a man who has committed his life to studying, to understanding, to even memorizing the Old Testament ceremonial and sacrificial and moral laws of God. The Ten Commandments plus the 600 plus oral traditions that would regulate every aspect of a good Jew's life. This guy's an expert in the law. This guy's been to seminary. This guy's earned his Ph.D., if you will. And he stands up to confront Jesus, to test him. And so we ask him the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I'm glad Jesus didn't laugh at him for a silly question. What must I do? To inherit eternal life. He thinks he can earn it. He thinks he can work for it. He knows that God has promised a life beyond this life. God's promised a world beyond this world. And he wants to be a part of that eternal life. And that eternal world that God has promised to the righteous. So what must I do? How should I live my life to merit entrance into that next life? Well, to get an inheritance, somebody's going to have to die. First of all, but the kind of inheritance he's wanting, he's going to have to discover you can't earn it. So, how does Jesus respond, verse 27 or verse 26? He said to him, "What is written in the law? How do you read it?" I love that about Jesus. So often when people asked him questions, he would ask them a question in return. That's a good teacher, right? That's what good teachers do. They ask questions to get the pupil, to get the student to think and to find the answer. Think critically. Look for the answer for yourself. So you're the expert in the law, Mr. Lawyer. How do you read the law? Verse 27, and he answered... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. He's quoting from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. And then, as, love your neighbor as yourself. Then he quotes from Leviticus, the Old Testament book of Leviticus. And so this guy knows the answer to his own question. Like a good trial lawyer, you never ask a question in a courtroom that you don't already know the answer to. And so he knows the answer. He knows the answer for a couple of reasons. One is he is a person schooled in the Old Testament law, and like a faithful Jew, twice a day, morning and evening, he has recited the Shema, S-H-E-M-A, The scriptural declaration, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And of course, he's heard Jesus probably say, that's the greatest commandment in the Old Testament. If you want to know what the greatest commandment is, is that you love God supremely with everything you've got. But he also had heard Jesus say, the second greatest commandment is love your neighbor. As yourself. So he gives the right answer. But he hasn't yet sprung his trap. He's leading Jesus deeper down. So he he gives the right answer. And here's how Jesus responds. Verse 28. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. That's the right answer. Love God supremely and perfectly, and love your neighbor just like you love yourself. Treat other people just like you would want to be treated, and just like you treat yourself. Now, if he had really been sincere in his question, and if he had really been sincere about his own love for God and for other people, he would have immediately said, Jesus, I'm in trouble, because I have not loved God perfectly. I've not loved God supremely, not at all times, not in all ways, and I've not always loved my neighbor. In fact, here's something you need to know, is Jesus teaching that you can work your way to heaven, that if you can just live a perfect life, then you get to heaven. Is that why God gave us the law to spell out exactly how we should live, and when we obey the law, then we get to go to heaven when we die? No. The scripture teaches no one is justified by keeping the law. Because we can't do it perfectly. None of us have, none of us can live perfectly according to God's standard. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You said, then why did God give the law? Because the law was a school teacher, the Apostle Paul says. That the law was given to teach us that we are incapable, we are sinners. And we are in desperate need of a forgiving, gracious, merciful God. If we're ever going to be right with him. The law drives us to just throw up our hands and say, I can't, I can't. Kind of like I did in Greek class. You know, I can't, I'm struggling to memorize these paradigms. And when we give up, we find God's grace and God's mercy. So he thinks he's putting Jesus to the test. Jesus is actually putting him to the test. You think... That you're all right with God. But you're deceiving yourself. So Jesus says, oh, okay. You know the answer. You want eternal life? Go and do that perfectly and you will live. But there's a couple of problems that the lawyer has. One is he's got a troubled conscience because he knows deep down he's not loved every person like he loves himself. And he also needs to spring his trap on Jesus. So look at verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself. In other words, to justify his actions, to validate the way he is living his life and treating other people, to find a loophole in the law, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? You see, he knows deep down he doesn't love everyone in the world equally. He doesn't treat everyone he's ever met like he would want to be treated. There are certain people that are outside the scope of his love. and he thinks he's justified in not loving certain kinds of people. And he's hoping if he can get Jesus on record in defining some people that he is supposed to love, then other people will be scandalized. And will turn away from Jesus. Jesus is getting a reputation by this point of being a friend of sinners. And the religious people are saying, I can't believe this guy likes these kind of people, hangs out with these kind of people, even loves these kind of people, and forgives these kind of people. So he's hoping Jesus will say, Well, you're supposed to love everyone. What do you mean, prostitutes? You're telling them to love prostitutes? See, he's not the Messiah. He's not sent from God. He's not righteous. How could he tell us to love those kind of people? You mean people of a different race or religion? People who aren't Jews like we are, who have the law, who are the sons of Abraham. You mean we're supposed to love other people, even Gentiles? Now, before we fought this lawyer who's looking for limits of love. We do the same thing. We find it easy to love people who look like us, who vote like us, who act like us, whose lifestyle is what we approve of, who are religious like we are. And we find it very easy to excuse ourselves from loving people who don't meet our standards. So he's asking Jesus, well, we need to define some terms. It depends on what the definition of is is. uh, Who... Who is my neighbor? You gotta define neighbor for me. You see, in this lawyer's culture in his day, neighbor had been defined by the Jewish people as the person who is near to you. That could be a person who is near in your family, it could be a person who is near in living next door to you, or it could be someone who is near to you in religion and in a righteous life. Those are your neighbors. Everyone else, don't meet the criteria of neighbor. And so he's hoping Jesus will give an answer that scandalizes the crowd, that they can then turn on Jesus. And who is my neighbor? Verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. (laughs) You can almost imagine, really? Why can't you just answer my question? He's going off on another one of those stories again. He can't just answer a question. He's going to tell one of these parables with a point. And we're all going to walk away scratching our head going, I I don't know what that means. Even the disciples don't even know what it means. But he's telling a story once upon a time. And so he's making up this fictitious story, but it has a point to it. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. It's true that if you want to travel from Jerusalem to Jericho, even today you can travel this same road that is visible from a paved highway. You're going to travel down. You always go up to Jerusalem and you go down from Jerusalem. It's about a 17-mile trek from Jerusalem to Jericho and you're going to descend about 3,300 feet along the journey. And in that day, it was a very perilous journey because it was dangerous. Robbers and brigands would often prey on travelers. So, so they would relate in Jesus' day to this story. It made sense. It was like reading a newspaper in our day. A man was going down. Nobody reads newspapers. Why well, did I even say that? A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. This guy, bloodied, bruised, battered, robbed, and then left for dead. Verse 31, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. A priest, a Jewish priest. He had been to Jerusalem. He has performed his ceremonial duties. He is right with God. Now he's on his way home to Jericho. And by chance, he's going down that road. And when he, what's the word? Saw. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So you've got this Jewish priest who's on his way home, having done his duty for God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God. He sees this man in the ditch. He knows he's been robbed, beaten, battered, bloodied, half dead. But in some way, he justifies his actions of walking by him on the other side of the road. And he ignores the man in the ditch. Jesus is making this story up so he doesn't tell us what was in the priest's mind. Maybe the priest thought, I don't have time for this. I've got to get home. I have responsibilities. I have people waiting on me. And besides, I'm ceremonially clean. And it'd be just my luck to go over there and help this guy and him die in my arms. And the Old Testament law says if you touch something dead, you're now ceremonially unclean. It's going to be a week of Cleansing rituals I've got to go through. It's going to put me out of commission as a priest for a week. It's going to cost a lot of money. I don't have time for that. We don't know if that's what he thought. But sometimes that's how we think. When we see a need, a person in need, and we can justify why we're not going to meet it. So Jesus continues in his story. Verse 32. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and, what's the word? Saw saw him, passed by on the other side. A Levite is not quite a priest, but he is uh, a descendant of Levi from ancient Israel. He, uh, and if you're a Levite, you serve in the temple and you kind of keep the operations going. You're the -the behind-the-scenes people that keep it running. And according to Jesus' story, likewise, the Levite passed by on the other side. We don't know what he thought. Perhaps he said, I know if the priest is too busy, you know I'm too busy. I have to do everything he doesn't want to do. We don't know what he had to think, but somehow he justified himself in passing by on the other side. And so far, Jesus' story is about a priest and a Levite. And if you were in Jesus' audience, you would have expected next in the story, another character, a Jewish layperson, just a a regular Jewish person on their way. But the third character was a big surprise to Jesus' audience. Jesus said in verse 33, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he, what's the word? Saw him... He had compassion. Now, I paused whenever I read verse 33 and I read the word Samaritan, and not a single one of you said, oh, No, a Samaritan. Because it doesn't mean anything to us today. But if you'd have been in Jesus' audience and you'd have heard him say, Let me tell you a story about a priest and a Levite and a Samaritan. Oh, Samaritan. You need to remember the history here. Probably 750 years earlier, Assyria had conquered Israel. They had taken tens of thousands of Israelites out of the promised land. They had left some Jewish people behind, but then they repopulated the Holy Land with other Assyrians that they had conquered from all over their empire. And over time, those new people, pagans, intermingled and intermarried with the Jewish people who had been left behind and a new race of people, the Samaritans, had arisen. And the Jews considered them half-breeds. The Jews considered them ceremonially and spiritually unclean. They would often look at them and call them dirty dogs. Because we love dogs as pets in our culture, but not in that culture. And if you were a good Jew traveling and you had to go through Samaria, you would often take a one-day detour just to bypass Samaria. So you wouldn't have to deal with those people. And Jesus says, but a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where this man was in the ditch. And when he saw him, he saw the same thing the priest and the Levite saw. But the difference is the Samaritan had compassion on him. Literally, he was viscerally moved with love. He had to act. He could not sit idly by or stand idly by and not do something for this man in a ditch. He saw a need. And he had the ability to meet it. And his compassion moved him. Verse 34. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Verse 35. And the next day he took out two denarii, two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper, saying... Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Jesus says, here's the one who acted. And remember, all of this is because the lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? So when Jesus was through with this story, he asked this next question, verse 36. Which of these three do you think? proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. Which one of the three proved to be a neighbor? You're asking me who is my neighbor. I just told you a story. Which one of the three actually was a neighbor to the man in need? And this guy has to reluctantly answer. Verse 37, he said, The one... Who showed him mercy? That was the neighbor in the story. And Jesus said to him, You go and you do likewise. He's saying, Why don't you stop asking, Who is my neighbor? Looking to justify yourself so that you can leave people out who don't meet your criteria. And why don't you just go and live your life being a neighbor? And when you see a need, that you have the ability to meet, then be a neighbor in that moment. And Dear friend, listen. You and I need to recognize as followers of Jesus, when he says, you go and do likewise, you go and show mercy when you see people in need, whose need you can meet, that is not so we can earn our salvation. We know that the truth is, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. We know, according to Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23, that the wages of our sin is death. We can't be saved by doing anything. Good, we're sinners. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We know we have eternal life, not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus did, and we are trusting in him, the one who has shown us mercy. Can I tell you, right in front of this lawyer is not just a story about the good Samaritan. Standing in front of this lawyer is the good Savior, Jesus, who is going to go to a bloody cross and he's going to die for the sins of the world. And while we are helpless and hopeless to extricate ourselves from the ditch of sin, in mercy Christ came to us and Christ saves us all by his grace. And this man should have said, Jesus, I have failed this test. I realize I don't love God like I should, and I don't love my neighbor like I should. I need forgiveness. And having been forgiven of God through Christ, he could then go and live his life as imperfectly as any of us will, because we're not going to be perfect this out of heaven, not to earn eternal life, but to express it. That I'm going to show the world that I love God who's been good to me. By the way, I treat people in my life. People in need. Listen, being a neighbor can be messy. This man had to go to a battered, bleeding man in a ditch. And it says, with his own hands, he binds up his wounds. He gets his hands dirty. He pours on oil to soothe the wounds and wine to clean out the wounds. And he bandages this man. Being a neighbor can be messy. Being a neighbor can be personally costly and inconvenient. He has to lift this man out of a ditch and put him on his own animal. And take him that journey. Not to his home, but to an inn close by. So that the man can recuperate. And being a neighbor can be costly. He takes money out of his own pocket and he pays the innkeeper. And he even says, when I come back, if if you've incurred any further expenses, I'll cover those as well. Ministry can be messy, personal, and costly. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. And your neighbor could be someone like you or unlike you. You couldn't think of a greater dichotomy between a Jew and a Samaritan. But in that moment, the Samaritan was the neighbor to the Jew, even though they were not alike. A neighbor could be someone known to you or unknown to you. There's no indication in Jesus' story that the Samaritan had ever met the man in the ditch. He went and helped a complete stranger out of compassion. He saw a need that he could meet, and he met it. And you and I need to learn that in Christ our love needs to be lavish without limits. You say, are you saying, Pastor, that I'm supposed to love people who voted for this person or for that candidate? Yep, I sure am. Are you saying I'm supposed to love people who are here illegally? Yep, I sure am. You're supposed to, I'm supposed to love people of a a sinful lifestyle that I don't approve of? Yes, you are. I'm supposed to love people who don't look like me, who aren't from this place, who don't do what I do? Yes, you are. And being a neighbor means, according to Haddon Robinson, the late Dr. Haddon Robinson, being a neighbor is when you see a need that you can meet and you meet it. With no limitations, with no excuses, with no personal justifications. Now, does that mean that I have to meet every need in the world to be the good neighbor Christ has called me to be? No, because we all see more needs than we are able to meet. That's not the point. The point is you, meet a, you see a need, and if you have the ability to meet that need, then you can meet it. Be a good neighbor. But if you can't, that's not on you. But so often we don't do something now today because we say, well, I can't help everybody. Well, just do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. I can't foster every child. Well, foster one in Bursi, Haiti, Cabaret. Well, I can't solve all the problems in the Bahamas. Well, just try to give a little. Just do what you can. Well, what if they want something back in return and I can't keep giving? Well, you've met your obligation. If you see a need that you can meet, you meet it. And that's your obligation. Several years ago, I remember talking to a person who said, I'm not a member of your church, but I know one of your church members. And I wanted to tell you about them. I'm going, oh, no. (laughs) You know, so my heart starts pounding. What am I about to hear? And she said, I've been really dealing with a lot of health problems. My medical bills have just gotten out of hand and we're probably going to have to file for bankruptcy. She said, but one of your church members heard secondhand what we were going through and gave us $10,000 for some of our medical needs. And this person said, she would never tell you that, and she's probably going to be offended that I've told you, but I wanted you to know what kind of church members you have. This person didn't come to me and say, there's a person with a need and the church ought to do something. Which typically means, listen, I'm busy and I got a life, but Ricky, you're not busy, you don't have a life, so you need to go do something. That's usually what that means. But this person just said, I see a need and I have the ability to meet that need, therefore I'm going to be a neighbor to this person. I said, did you guys know each other? He said, we have never met a mutual friend of ours told her about me. And your church member acted. Can we all do something like that? No. Give that much money? Maybe, maybe not. It's not the point. Who in your life needs your mercy and that you can give it? Who this week needs you to come alongside them and to be a neighbor to them in their time of need? And the reason you do it is because you realize it was once you in a ditch, spiritually speaking. In your sin, unable to save yourself, but Christ came. And Jesus changes everything chains fall, fears bow, lives are healed because he changes everything. And that's what being a good neighbor means that I'm gonna show my mercy to someone that I can show mercy to. That our love for others should be lavish, not limited. In Fort Caroline, this is a part of the vision that God has given me for our church. I'm still wrestling with what God's will is for the future of our church. I'm just going to be honest with you because I love our church, but I don't believe God's finished with what he's called us to do. And I believe there's some things that have got to change in our church. If we're going to be more of the body of Christ in this community than ever. And I don't have it all figured out, but I can tell you this. Part of the vision God's given me for this church is that we become a church. We continue to build on the fact that we are a church in many ways that unleashes the mercy and compassion of Jesus, neighbor to neighbor. It's not a program I'm talking about where we're going to hire a new staff member and we're going to ramp up this big new program. No, 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 no. It's a vision of the 2,000 plus members of this church living like a good Samaritan out in this community. That will change people's lives if we do it for the glory of Jesus. Not to earn our salvation, but to express it. And I believe you want to be a part of that. I personally can't do everything, can't fix everything, can't meet every need. But I can say today, God, how can I help? Show me some way today or this week, how I can help someone in my life. Known to me, unknown to me. Like me, unlike me. Lovely, unlovely. How can I show your love and be a neighbor? Let's pray together. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, your homework this week is to ask this question. Maybe to yourself or maybe to another person where you see they have a need. And the question is, how can I help And let the Holy Spirit lead you to that answer. How can I help? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this example from him and the parable that he shared. What it means to be a neighbor. Go and do likewise. Go and if you see a need that you have the ability to meet, just be a neighbor. And God, I thank you for that because That'll change this world. That is what this world needs. It has enough division, enough anger, enough hatred, enough prejudice, enough indifference and callousness. This world needs love. This world needs, this community needs us to not just be the ones who know the Bible verses, but to be the one who puts the Bible verse into practice. That I love God. And I love my neighbor as myself. And by your Holy Spirit's help, we can be the people you want us to be, individually and collectively as a congregation. God, if there's someone in this room today who needs Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I pray that today they will hear the good news. They can rest from trying to work their way to heaven or do enough good to get there. But what they can do is place their faith in Jesus who offered his righteous life in exchange for our sinful lives. And through his death and his resurrection, he says, whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Thank you for as simple as believing, trusting in Jesus. So maybe someone today will turn from their sin, confess to Jesus their sin, and their trust in him as their Lord and their Savior. We love you, God. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.